Our scripture this morning is Philippians 3, 1 to 14. It, would it help you if you thought, as Ernest used to like to say, you're reading somebody else's mail this morning? Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So this week, we come in the letter to the Philippians to one of the most theologically rich passages in all of Philippians, not even really just in all of Philippians, in all of the New Testament. And earlier this week, I had a dream about this passage, and in this dream, I was listening to this uh, well-known, nationally known preacher, and he, and he happened to be preaching on this passage from Philippians that I'm preaching on this week. And in my dream, the preacher was explaining to the congregation why this was the fifth Sunday in a row he was preaching on this passage. And I woke up, and I realized it's true. There is so much here, I should be taking five weeks. And if this guy, who is this incredible preacher, if he takes five weeks to preach this passage, how can I possibly do it justice in one week? So I'm opening my soul to you. I'm telling you some of my deepest fears that manifest themselves in my dreams that I can't do justice to a passage. We're in Philippians chapter 3, and if you, you're following along in your Bible, 
Paul begins this passage with an exhortation to rejoice. We've seen this word a number of times already. This is the letter to, of joy, and it just keeps popping up in this letter. But then quickly, it turns to some of the harshest and most strident words in all of the letter. Watch out for the dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. As harsh as that sounds in English, it's harsher in the Greek. We've got three times he says, watch out. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. One of the places that we visited this summer was a place called Telluride. It's a small little ski town in southwest Colorado, and the scenery there is absolutely stunning. Uh, this town is set in a box canyon and is basically surrounded by mountains. But the thing I remember about this town was not the scenery, it was the dogs. They were everywhere. They were little, and they were designer, and they were pushed around in strollers, some of them. And I remember thinking, what is going on? I, in many ways, me, this day tourist, this out-of-stater, I felt like I had less claim to this street in Telluride than these little dogs that seemed to rule the town. That's a little extreme, but we love our dogs in the United States. Dogs are great. But in Paul's world, dogs are not great. Dogs in Paul's world are unfit for human society. Dogs are unclean. Dogs are scavengers that eat anything. There's one proverb that speaks about a dog eating its own vomit, and the, and the author gives that as an image for a fool returning to foolish behavior. So who are these dogs Paul is referring to? We don't know for sure. Again, we're speculating, but likely he might be speaking about the Judaizers. The Judaizers were this faction of Jewish Christians who regarded the Levitical law in the Old Testament as still binding on Christians. So there, there may have been, we're speculating here, but there may have been Judaizers in this, around Philippi, maybe uh, Jewish missionaries, who were coming and telling the, the Gentiles in Philippi, in Philippi, you need to be circumcised. If you want to be acceptable to God, you need, you need Jesus Christ, but you also need circumcision. And, and, and again, this is harsh, this, but Paul is probably kind of dripping with irony here when he says dogs, because he's turning this back on the Judaizers. Because dogs are what Jews sometimes called the Gentiles. Gentiles, Gentiles ate unclean food, so they were like dogs. And Paul is saying, you say the Gentiles are outsiders, they're unclean like dogs because they don't practice circumcision. But in reality, you're the outsiders. And, and this is some fiery language, right? It maybe, maybe, maybe even makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But let's remember a couple things. One, this is not a blast against Judaism. Paul is Jewish. Not only is Paul Jewish, but Paul will go on, as we'll, we'll go on to next, and list his credentials. He is a, an impeccable Jew. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. What Paul is so upset about is not the practice of Jewish circumcision. It's that these Judaizers were making this a requirement for entry into the people of God. And so even though we're, we're familiar with circumcision, and this is odd, right? What is so big, what's such a big deal about the cutting of flesh for these people? But for the Jewish people, we have to remember, physical circumcision was that, that very visible mark that showed them that they were part of God's chosen people. So Paul's not blasting Judaism. Let's, let's first note that, but also note Paul is angry, but who is he angry on behalf of? He's angry on behalf of other people, of these Gentiles in Philippi. 
Earlier on in the letter, Paul speaks about how people are coming after him, and he's just kind of like, you know, what can I do? But when they're coming after these Gentile believers, he is very angry because he feels like this is an attack on the heart of the gospel. That's the second thing. Paul is angry on the behalf of other people. He then begins to tell his own story. Okay, so Paul says, hey, any of, if anyone has reason to, to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And what he means by flesh is not like literal flesh. He means the pride that comes from his religious and ethnic background as a Jew. And so Paul is saying, hey, you, you Judaizers, these ethnic markers like circumcision, I know these are really important to you. I know that's what gives you confidence that you're a part of God's people, that you are acceptable to God. So if you want to go down that road, I'll go down that road with you. You want to play that game, I'll play that game, and I will trump whatever hand you have. Because here's what I got in my hand. I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, Paul's saying, I came from a very religious family. Of the people of Israel, I was born into the nation of Israel. Some of these Judaizers likely converted to Judaism. Paul is saying, hey, I am a natural-born citizen in God's chosen people of the tribe of Benjamin. I can trace my ancestry back 2,000 years to the 12 tribes of, of, of Israel. Not only that, I claim ancestry to the tribe that produced the first king of Israel, Saul. Hebrew of Hebrews. Here, Paul's probably sp- talking about the language he spoke as a child in his house, likely Aramaic or Hebrew. And so he lists those first things to say, I've got all the right pedigree. I've got all the honors and privileges that come from being born in the right family and in the right nation. And then he continues, in regard to the law of Pharisee. So Paul was part of this elite religious political party known as the Pharisees, meaning he would have got a first-class education in the law of Moses. Zeal, Paul was zealous for God's law. And finally, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So Paul's not here, he's not saying he's sinless, he's not saying he's perfect, as one commentator put it, it's kind of like saying, I am blameless in driving because I practice all, I follow all the traffic and speed laws. Doesn't make you a perfect driver, but a blameless one. So when it came to following the law, Paul says, I'm faultless, I'm blameless. In other words, Paul is saying, I was born in the right ethnic group, I was born in the right family, I speak the right language, I've got the right education, I behave the right way, I have all the things that you think are important, and make you acceptable to God and others. I can tick all those boxes. Let's think about this for us today. Paul's list of honors and achievements and privileges, I, I doubt this looks super impressive to us today. I don't hear many men like bragging about the day they were circumcised. I don't hear anybody in the church saying, making the claim to be a Pharisee. We usually use that in the church as a very negative label in our world. But we've got things we treasure. We've got things we value, that we're proud of, and that we think we've accomplished. We have things that we use to justify our existence, meaning we look to things in our upbringing, we look to things from where we came from, we look to our accomplishments, and our families, our behavior, and we look at those to make us acceptable to God, to ourselves, and to others. And depending on kind of what, where you are and what circle you're in, those things might change. Let me give you an example. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a few years, uh, and 
I've never lived in a place where so many like super smart and super type A ambitious people seem to congregate in just this one little place. And one of the things I was not used to coming from Southwest Missouri was people talking about where they went to college. And I realized in DC, in this Northwest quadrant, this was a super important social marker. And I would say, you know, somehow this would come up in conversation. I went to school at Abilene Christian. I think by that point their eyes were glazed over. One, they never heard of this like tiny college in West Texas. It was not, it was not an Ivy League school. It was not an elite school on one of the coasts. See, education was highly, highly prized out there, and that gave someone credentials. That made them valuable in their own eyes and the eyes of other people. Around here in Northeast Ohio, we got our own social markers that make us acceptable to others. It could be our jobs. It could be the businesses that we've built up. It could be our kids. It could be our kids' accomplishments. How are our kids doing in school? How good is our kid at a certain sport? What kind of car do we drive? Where do we live? What neighborhood do we live? What city do we live in? How good are we? What's our own morality? In Mennonite circles, you can even trace your ancestry back as a source of pride. Paul, Paul has a, his, his ancestry traces back to the tribe of Benjamin. Mennonites, in their proud and kind of humble way, will trace their lineage back to the tribe of Kaufman or the tribe of Zare or the tribe of Hirschberger. I'm intentionally leaving out any of your names. Here's my point. We don't point to circumcision and zeal for the law as things that make us acceptable to God and to others today, but we have all kinds of other things. We do it through our accomplishments. We do it through our religious heritage. We do it through our education. Maybe if we don't do it through our own education, we do it through our kids' education that they got. We do that to reassure ourselves we matter. We matter to the world. We, we want to justify that we, we matter. We're acceptable. And here's the deal. Most of those things aren't bad things. You're going to have, if we're going to understand what Paul's getting at, we're going to have to understand that Paul is not listing these things out because he's embarrassed by them. He's not sheepishly saying, you know, I regretfully list all these things as a source of shame. It's just the opposite. For most of Paul's life, he's built his identity around these things. And these things that he's telling these to the Judaizers, they're important to them. But Paul, he calls these things gains. He calls them, uh, in verse 7, you can see he calls them gains. And when Paul is calling them gains, he's using the language of accounting. If you are an accountant or you've studied accounting, you know this language. There's gains and losses. There's assets and liabilities. There's credits and debits. And so think about, like, for example, a balance sheet. Typically, if you look at a balance sheet, on the left side, you'll list all uh, the assets. So things like how much cash you or your business has. What are your investments? How much are they worth? What is your real estate? On the left side of your balance sheet is, are your assets. And on the right side, you put your liabilities. So these are your debts. These are your, this is your credit card balance. This is loans. This is what your business still owes. And on Paul's balance sheet, in regards to the status of God's people, Paul has all assets and no liabilities. Paul has all gains and no losses. Everything the Judaizers would have considered valuable, Paul's got that. Paul is that guy in Washington, D.C. who, for his undergraduate, went to Harvard, got a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford, and came back and did a Ph.D. at Yale. 
He has sterling credentials. But, Paul continues, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. All those things I just told you about, that whole list, all those assets, I now consider them losses. I took a big Sharpie pen and I scratched a big X in those assets and I moved them all over to the liability side of the balance sheet. In fact, Paul says, you know, relatively speaking, these now are garbage, they're refuse. That's what Paul is saying in verse 8. How can Paul say this? How can Paul call these valuable things, these status symbols that give him worth uh, in his own eyes, in the eyes of his culture, how could he call these things garbage? Imagine what it would take in your life for the thing that you're most proud of to say, relatively speaking, this looks like garbage. What could possibly do that? Something must be stunning and overwhelmingly beautiful and value. That would have to come along, and that's what Paul says happened. It wasn't a thing, it was a person, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, when I stack all these things that I once saw assets, when I stack them against Jesus Christ, they look worthless. As Fred Craddock says, Paul does not toss away junk to gain Christ. He tosses away that which was tremendous value to him. I think this is important for us to see. Paul is not saying, you know, I came to know Jesus, and, and, and when I came to know Jesus, I dropped these things that, you know, kind of weren't all that much valuable to me anyway. Or I came to know Jesus, and I thought, you know, Jesus would be a good addition to my resume. I've got all these things to list, and then I can add Jesus. I'm afraid, in our culture, it's very common to do this. See, what we give our attention to ultimately is what we value. And what tends to get most of our attention in our culture? See, or we'll see Jesus is valuable. Going to church, being a Christian is valuable. It's a nice addition to everything else we think is valuable. We've got our jobs, we've got our families, we've got our kids, we've got our hobbies, we've got our sports teams, and Jesus is the icing on the cake for all those things. Jesus makes every one of those things just a little bit sweeter. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I found Jesus, and Jesus made all those other things look like garbage. I had all these things that by my standards and your standards are super valuable, and then I encountered Jesus, and I, com- I realized, comparatively speaking, they're worthless. Think about it. What would it take for everything you had worked so hard for that you were so proud of, all your accomplishments, your parents, your kids, your religious background, your job, how much money you got in your bank account, valuable stuff in your mind, to just say, that stuff is garbage now to me. There's a TV series I've been watching called Loki. Anybody seen this TV show? All right. Hang with me, because it takes place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and you're like, I have no idea what the Marvel Cinematic Universe is. Hang with me. I think I can still make the point. This is the universe based on Marvel comics. Uh, You probably remember those when you were a kid, and, and it includes these movies like The Avengers. So Loki is the god of mischief. In, in this Marvel universe. And in this TV series, which is a spinoff, Loki finds himself in this place called the Time Variance Authority. And this is a place that is really a mysterious place. Loki's not sure where he's at. It exists outside of time and space. And Loki doesn't really understand what this place is. But in this place, there's all kinds of bureaucrats who are working to monitor the timeline 
in Loki's universe. And in the first episode, Loki is walking around this time variance authority when he discovers in these drawers, one of these drawers of all these bureaucrats, all these infinity stones. And in Loki's universe, these are the most valuable and powerful things in the universe. These infinity stones, there's six of them, and they're all different colors. One allows a person to, to travel between time, places instantaneously. One controls other people's minds. One changes reality. One controls time. And together, if you can combine these infinity stones, you have the most powerful thing in the world that in the movies wipes out half of the universe. Okay? These are powerful stones. And Loki sees these stones sitting in a desk drawer, and the guy says to him, yeah, those are used as paperwork or paperweights by some of the workers. And at that moment, it's an awesome scene because Loki, all of a sudden the scales just drop off. He is staring at these stones that in his universe are the most valuable thing in the world, and in this place, they're nothing more than paperweights. And Loki says, is this the greatest power in the universe? Is this the greatest power in the universe? What could Paul have discovered that would have taken the most valuable things in Paul's world and his universe, his infinity stones, and all of them sudden made them about as valuable as paperweights? Paul says it's knowing Christ Jesus. Paul had encountered the greatest power in the universe, Jesus Christ, and the scales had dropped off of Paul's eyes. And Paul had realized that everything he once thought was valuable, when he put that side by side with Jesus Christ, it was like paperweights. See, one of the signs for us as disciples of Jesus that we are growing and maturing in our faith is things that we once saw as super, super valuable, not necessarily, not bad things, but things that, good things usually in our life that we thought were super valuable, that we built our identity around, that made us feel important, all of a sudden we look at those things differently. They've lost some of their luster. The scales for us have dropped off our eyes because we've discovered something so much more beautiful, so much more powerful in Jesus Christ. Whatever infinity stones that we're chasing after, that we're trying to, to find to make ourselves look good and acceptable to God and to others, all of a sudden look like paperweights. They, they might have served a purpose, but try building your life and identity around a paperweight. It doesn't work. And that's what Paul is saying. I had all these things that I once thought, and you still think, make me acceptable to God. I was born to the right people. I had the right family. I did the right things. But I realized when I encountered Jesus Christ, what made me acceptable to God and others was not what I had done, but what Jesus Christ had done. It was not my accomplishments, but his accomplishments. And, and this is, here's the deal with this. This realization has the potential to be incredibly good news or incredibly challenging. How so? This can be deeply comforting to you. Some of us, some of us here today may be thinking, you know, if I were to do what Paul did and I were to do a balance sheet and I were to take all the things that the world and my peers think are so valuable and I was to add those up on one side and then I was to do my debits, and I would think about all the things that, that the, val the world does not value, that do not give me status, and I were to put that on this side, these debits would dwarf these credits. Okay? 
The new, this news, though, is incredibly comforting because we realize it is not our own accomplishments, our own credits that make us right and acceptable to God, but Jesus Christ. See, when we, put, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we get the ultimate credit put on our asset side. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and when I faith, I don't mean just intellectual sin. I mean when we give our lives fully to Jesus Christ, when we put our trust in him, when we give our allegiance and loyalty to Jesus Christ, we get the ultimate credit. Like whatever debts we, we bring to the table, they are so dwarfed by Jesus Christ, they just are nothing. And that's good news. Because we're made acceptable, our lives are given infinite value. We are so deeply and profoundly loved by a creator, not by our own merits, but by God's grace. And that is good news, my friends. But this can be a challenge too. See, what Paul is saying to these Judaizers was a challenge. You know, you guys are proud of a lot of different things. You're proud that you are part of God's people, that you have these certain ethnic markers that set you apart from other Jews, from other people, like circumcision, that make you acceptable to God, that make you feel special. And all of a sudden, Paul is saying, no, compared to Jesus Christ, those don't. And this can be a challenge to us because because we're prone to build our identity, our worth, around other things than Jesus Christ. We are all prone to do that. We are all tempted to do that. And all of a sudden, we realize all those accomplishments, all those successes, how good we were, our morality, our family, the kids we produced, our religious background, we are proud of those things. They're not garbage to us. These things are our infinity stones, We don't like it when people attack our infinity stones. These are the things that we value most in the world that give us worth. And all of a sudden, Paul is saying, no, relatively speaking, those are garbage. That can be humbling to say, you know what? At the end of the day, what makes me acceptable is not what I did, but what Jesus Christ did. What gives me worth in the eyes of God is not my religious upbringing. It's Jesus Christ and what he has done. Paul's world has, uh, through this encounter with Jesus Christ, through coming to know Jesus Christ, it's been completely flipped around. But I want you to notice what he says next. It's surprising. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. So Paul is using, throughout this part, runner's language. If you run you know that running strains almost every part of your body. Like you labor to breathe, you sweat, often your tendons and your, a lot of your body aches, your heart beats fast. Like personally, I don't know, the things I do, nothing strains me more than running, particularly if you're sprinting. And this is the analogy that Paul draws on to describe his pursuit of Christ and the prize that is ahead of him. I think sometimes, we're, unfortunately, we get God's grace, which is excellent, and we sometimes see that as like more of a get-out-of-jail card. That we take on the righteousness of Christ, not our own accomplishments, and therefore we are set free to kind of take it easy. Kind of chill out until, I don't know, what's next? Paul is just the opposite. Paul has grasped God's grace, and it sends him off on this journey of straining of running, wrestling, fighting, none of it which will end till the day of Christ. Paul, so, yeah, so I want you to see that. I want you to see Paul is 
rocketed out with, with this ahead to the prize, but he's straining. But look at one more thing in verse 12. Not that I have already arrived or obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus stood, took hold of me. <laughs> Sorry. Paul isn't just striving or laboring or, or pressing ahead alone. Jesus Christ has seized Paul. Jesus Christ has taken hold of her. And, and I was trying to get my own mind around this. How does this work when Paul is pressing ahead and yet Jesus Christ has seized um, Paul? But here's what the analogy that came to my mind. Our, this summer, our family climbed a, a number of mountains over 14,000 feet in Colorado. And something that I've long been uh, familiar with and when I've climbed is something called summit fever. So what summit fever is, is that you want so badly to get to the top of that mountain. You have this summit fever. Everything in you is just, you're fixated on the top of the mountain. And it's a problem in climbing because the problem is you become fixated on getting to the summit and you ignore all these conditions on the mountain that are posing risk to you. The weather, maybe you're not feeling well, maybe altitude is making you sick, uh, maybe your group is going too slow, right? Summit fever can be a problem in mountaineering. But, but summit fever, when it's good, it seizes you, and it's like it pulls you up the mountain. You're exhausted from your climbing, but you're seized by summit fever, by the prize that is ahead of you, and it pulls you up that mountain. Paul has summit fever. But the prize is not a, a tagging a mountain summit. The prize is being with Jesus Christ in the resurrection. The prize is, the prize is life with God in the new heavens and new earth. And, and toward that prize, Paul is straining. He's running. He's forgetting about what is behind him. He's pressing on towards that prize. But I think this is so interesting that in the end, that prize, Paul can seek because he's already been found. Christ, as Paul says, has already taken hold of him, has already seized him. How does that work? How does a person take hold of what already has taken hold of them? Lynn Coick gives this illustration, which I think is helpful. She says, think of a mother picking up a toddler. You know, a child will reach out to the mother to wrap that child's tiny arms around her neck. But from a mother's perspective, that mother has already grasped the child. The child thinks they're reaching out for the mother, but the mother knows that they're the ones that are grasping the child. And so too with Christ who grasps us. Even as we lean forward, even as we strain forward towards Christ, Christ wraps his arms around us. I love that image that Coet gives of a little child reaching out. Because sometimes that's what we're like. We're just like a little kid. We're straining or reaching out, and we have these huge arms that come around us and swoop us up. It sees us. It's like the prodigal son in Luke's gospel that Jesus talks about. The son is, is walking home, his head down, he's moving, and the father swoops in and seizes the son and hugs him. When we encounter and grow in our awareness of knowing just how great Jesus is, like Paul, we're sent off on a new adventure, a new journey, a new race, with a new prize. And as we press ahead, as we strain to take hold of that prize, we do so knowing that Jesus has already taken hold of us. Let's pray. All-powerful and loving God, we want our eyes to be open to the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Knock the scales off our eyes. Help us to see more clearly how, when compared to Jesus Christ, all the other pursuits, all the other gains 
are worthless. And as we press on, as we strain toward the prize which you call us to, take hold of us, seize us in your arms. I ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.